Good morning. Um, man, thank you, Janine. Setting me up. So, um, man, I also I love that uh, we're praying for God's chosen people. Church is just over there laughing with Charles. I love, like, seriously, I love the confidence of, like, God's chosen people, that they're calling themselves that and that they're just dialing into that. That's amazing. And um, over the last couple weeks, we, we planned to go in this direction with our Kingdom Culture Conference. Uh, we thought God had something for us, and it went a whole different way, right? Um, for those of you who were there, and God just began to press on our hearts this unity thing, and that's been amazing. And we've, we've seen God do some amazing things in this last month, the last couple months, that were unexpected, that we didn't plan to be on the agenda, but we're so glad it was. But in the midst of all of that, as we are continuing to pray for other churches like God's chosen people and different churches around our city. We want to continue to do that, but we want to make sure that we dial into what our mission statement is as we go into this new year. And so as Janine said, that's where we're going this year is equipping disciples in an up, in, and out lifestyle. So, so what does that mean? And um, more centrally, why did we pick that as our mission statement? Why did we feel led to that? And I felt like this morning, as we begin to dial into this, and we'll take a couple weeks to set this up, that this is where we're going over the course of uh, these next number of months and year. Um, but why? Why even do we have that as a statement, up, in, and out lifestyle? And then what do we mean by that? So that's, that's my goal today, is, is why, why is that our statement? And then what do we mean by that? So if you could put this up on the screen, we're going to look at Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles grab that. You can turn to, turn to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read this out, verses 12 through 19, and then pray, and we'll jump in. So it says, one day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. He prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large, level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. So Father, we, we come before you today and as this year gets underway and starts to uh, develop and God, we say, we are yours. We say that we want to be those who are hosts of your presence. Even as we sang this morning, Lord, show us your glory. We say, God, would you come and show us your glory in our midst as we gather and as we go. And Lord, I pray that even this morning and next week, God, that you would begin to do a work in our hearts such that we would catch a vision for living that up in and out lifestyle. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So, 
I want to begin this morning by sharing an excerpt from a uh, historical record from the First Great Awakening. Tell you a story. It was England at the beginning of the 18th century, and we're talking right before the American Revolution, and it was in a moral quagmire, a spiritual cesspool. Thomas Carlyle described the country's condition as stomach well alive, soul extinct. Deism was rampant. This idea of a God who's distant, a clockmaker, unengaged in his creation. It was a bland philosophical morality that was standard fare in the churches. Sir William Blackstone visited the church of every major clergyman in London, but he didn't hear a single discourse that had more Christianity in it than that of the philosopher Cicero. In most of the sermons that he heard, it would have been impossible to tell just who the listener, uh, who the preacher was a follower of, Confucius, Muhammad, or Christ. Morally, the country had become increasingly decadent, drunkenness rampant, gambling so extensive that one historian described England as one vast casino. Newborns exposed on the street, 97% of the infant poor in the workhouses died as children. Bear baiting and cockfighting were accepted sports. Tickets were sold to public executions as if it was the theater. The slave trade brought material gain to many and was degrading their souls at the same time. And in the midst of this environment, a man named John Wesley traveled over 250,000 miles in the cause of the gospel. In his preaching, he talked continually of Christ, emphasizing repentance, faith, holiness. As he preached, the manifest presence of God showed up and transformed many. As Wesley preached, multitudes also responded. He noted in his journal that the word of God ran as fire among the stubble. It was glorified more and more, and multitudes crying out, what must I do to be saved? Wesley then began to supervise the education of lay leaders to educate the people in small cell groups where discipline and faithfulness were learned. These preachers distributed and sold Christian books to the public. They helped provide them with spiritual food. Wesley pioneered a monthly magazine uh, and edited Christian Living, a selection of theological, devotional literature for the layperson. He developed a whole method for following Christ. He also was the first to print and use religious tracts extensively for outreach. So as you hear that, as I begin to describe the state of things right before the American Revolution, and then as God begins to use men like, uh, like John Wesley, another man named George Whitfield, they step into this during the First Great Awakening and begin to preach, and God begins to move powerfully. What does that sound like? What word would we use to describe what that is? Revival, revival right? We would say, that's Revival that God broke in powerfully in the midst of this crazy thing that's happening, this, this degradation of society. God moves and brings revival, right? And as God began to move, it's interesting to me the way these men began to respond, specifically George Whitfield and John Wesley. Because God used them powerfully, right? And however we would define it, we could say that's revival. That whether it's your definition of revival is that Without really knowing how or why, God shows up and people just begin to get saved. People begin to respond to the gospel. Or whether it's God begins to just pour out his presence 
and people are healed and, and the, the society begins to encounter this transformation. However you would define it, this is, that's revival, right? Because as they would, be, they would go to a new town, uh, John Wesley would send somebody ahead and he'd say, hey, clear out the field and by the way, don't let anybody sit in the trees. And they'd be like, well, why is that? Well, he would come and he'd start to preach and God's presence would come and people would come under conviction, begin to be saved and people who were sitting in the trees who didn't listen would come under the power of God and fall out of the tree. And this guy, then, then they'd have to get prayer for healing because they fell out of the tree and got hurt. That's revival, right? God's presence being poured out, people being saved, lives being changed through the power of the gospel. And in the midst of all this, what's interesting is the way that Whitfield and Wesley began to respond. Whitfield really focused on continuing this itinerant ministry where he would gather people together in fields. And they were both a part of what came to be known as Methodism, but Whitfield would really focus in on this itinerant ministry thing, and Wesley responded in a different way. You know, what he did is he went back to the Gospels. He went back to the origins of the faith and he said, as we're seeing this thing, as God's beginning to move, what is this? How do we respond to this? And he began to look at the pages of the Gospels and you know what he found? He began to look for what he was seeing. And there was no mention of revival. There's no mention of revival in the Gospels. No mention of revival in the book of Acts. You know what he saw instead? He saw Jesus in John 4 going for a walk, stopping at the, at the well, and a woman coming up to him, and then him beginning to release this revelation about the Christ, and a whole entire town being saved through that. He saw Philip in Acts chapter 8 going down to Samaria. Philip's been appointed to oversee the widows. He's doing his job, and then all of a sudden one day, there's no record of him praying into, where should I go? What should I do? He's just going down to Samaria. And what happens? An entire uh, section of the country encounters God and begins to be saved and come into the faith. What do we see? Normal Christianity. There's no record of revival. Instead, what we see is normal Christianity. Wesley began to point out he was after repentance, faith, and then what he called holiness or true religion, what I would call a lifestyle. He began to notice on the pages of the gospel that there were people who were just living normal life and out of their normal life would flow God's presence and things would begin to change in the earth. And so he began to set up these structures and what we would call Methodism. He began to set up a method for following God. He had a methodology for how is it that we can develop a way for people as they begin to be saved and encounter God's presence to live this out. And so now what's interesting to me is down to today, uh, Whitfield said this. He said, My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in societies and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected, and my people are a rope of sand. My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in societies and preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected, and my people are a rope of sand. There are no Whitfieldian societies today, but there are tens of millions of Methodists, of those who've followed that structure that Wesley set up. Now, what's the point in all of this? The point in all of this is I want to I dial in today to why, why do we have this mission statement of an up, in, and out lifestyle? What's the point here? 
Well, if I was to ask everybody in the room to raise your hand if you've been on a short-term mission trip, I bet a lot of people would raise their hand, right? But a lot of us have done that. I've been on them. I'm going on one here in May. There's, I, I love short-term mission trips. But one of the things that tends to happen in my heart that I think a lot of us tend to do when we think about a mission trip is we, we plan, we prepare, and then we pray into it. God, when I go to this place, when I get on this plane and I go to this place, God, would you move here? And we begin to hear God speak, and he speaks to us about that place, and we go there, and then we take a risk. We step out, and we extend our hand. We begin to step into what we feel like God's doing, and God moves, and he moves powerfully oftentimes. And then we come back, and we begin to think, okay, well, God wants to move over here, and if I believe for this over here, God's going to move. And we begin to have this, this idea in our mind that God moves in a special way when we step out into the mission field over here, Right? And really what's happened is we're getting what we aim for. Did you know this about the kingdom of God? You get what you aim for. But like Wesley, what if we go back to the Gospels and we read passages like Matthew 10 where Jesus said, as you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse the leper. He walks into this, this well at Samaria and he just begins to overflow with the ministry, ministry of Christ. That as he goes, he gathers people around him and he begins to form a new community. What if we aimed for that? So we're all aiming for something. And I think the question that I want to dial us into today is what are we aiming for? And what did Jesus aim for? So let's look at this. Again, if you have your Bibles, we'll, we'll be in Luke chapter 6. And see what Jesus aimed for as he gathered together with his disciples. Because we see here Jesus regularly practicing, interacting with the Father in an upward way. We see him regularly gathering with his disciples in community, inward, and regularly reaching outward to a hurting and broken world. So verse 12, one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And he prayed to God all night. See, Jesus, he did this regularly, right? This wasn't an abnormal thing. Jesus was often going up on the mountain to get away. But lest we think that that was all that he did, like it was just these events where he would take time to go and to pray, and then that was it. We have statements from him like, I only do what? What I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. It's like he's going up to pray, but then he's also living some sort of reality in his life everywhere he goes. I like the way um, a, a theologian that I, I really respect, Mike Breen, he puts it this way. He says that he breathed in God's presence and then he breathed out God's will. That as Jesus lived his life, he was constantly finding ways to be uh, connected to God in such a way that he was breathing in God's presence and breathing out God's will. See, Jesus was a participant in the divine flow or activity of God. And 2 Peter puts it this way, if you could put that verse up on the screen. In 2 Peter 1.4, he says that we are partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of his nature, not his essence. It's not that we become God as we draw near to him, but his activity, or the, the phrase I like is his flow. That if, 
the Trinity has got this flow of activity between the Father, the Son, the Spirit, or as some theologians have put it, a divine dance happening within himself. That to go up with God is to, to find ways to make space for his activity in our lives to, to draw near to him. But really, it's more like those are ways to create like a landing strip in our life for God's presence to flow into us and through us. Meg and I just went on a trip last weekend and we came into Oklahoma City and as we were uh, landing, the plane was landing, I just, my heart went back to that place of, you know, this is what my life is meant to be like with you, Jesus. That you're inviting me to practice some regular, everyday, mundane things like prayer, like reading your word that become a landing strip so that your presence lands on my life and then flows through my life everywhere I go. And this is what Jesus did. He went up with God in such a way that he was connected with God in union all the time. In verse 13, back in Luke 6, it says, At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. And then it lists off their names. And then from there, we begin to see that he has this, some, some differentiation between his disciples, his followers, and the crowds. All of a sudden, they're now a separate thing. Because you see, in the life of Jesus, he went in. He went in in the place of relationship, and it wasn't ambiguous. He was, it, it's not hard to tell as you read about the stories of Jesus, like, who is he wanting to spend his time with? Who's important to Jesus? No, it's really clear. He was unambiguous in saying, these are the people that I'm committed to. In fact, if you read and you you quantify what Jesus did with his different time in the Gospels, he spent more than 50% of his time with his spiritual family. That's a lot of time. To spend time with people, to, to not only spend time with them, but to let them into his life. In fact, he formed a whole new community, a community not defined by flesh and blood, but he's, when his, his uh, family comes to him, wanting time with him, what does he say? My brothers, my sisters are those who what? Hear my words and, and do them, obey them. So he's forming a whole new community that's going in defined by those who do, who practice the words of Jesus. And so he began to practice and demonstrate this, this way of living that uh, practiced, practiced giving, giving of himself and inviting others to give of themselves, that practiced meeting together, and in all of that, building an in lifestyle. And Jesus didn't just let people in because he opened up his heart. He, he, had, he still had good boundaries, but he was letting people into his life. Um, he did it in such a way that people came along for the journey and were a part of his life. It was him opening up his entire life to let people in along the way. And it was such that his life uh, was affected by them. We see even in, in places like the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's Jesus at his perhaps most vulnerable moments, and he's still modeling. He's still showing what it looks like to live an in lifestyle, where he's letting them into his, his vulnerable place, and letting them even speak into this crisis moment for him. So he modeled an in lifestyle, a lifestyle that wasn't just about gathering with people at, at events, but was opening his life that was letting people speak in to his heart. That practically it looked like that. That joining the flow of what God was doing was letting other people speak into 
his life. Jesus also went up. We see uh, in verse 17, Luke chapter 6, that he comes down from the mountain, the disciples stand with him, and there are people from all these different places gathering with him. And it says that they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits are healed. In fact, he goes so far as to say that every person that touches him gets healed. So Jesus goes out. He goes out into the full brokenness of the world. He's extending the reign and the rule of God outward as he goes. And it's like he's, he's, he's confronting the effects of sin head on in his ministry, in his life. That's just a part of his, his uh, heart posture. That is, his relationship with his father, his relationship with people, and his relationship with the world are just normal for him. And I, what I've noticed in this is that he, he's concerned with how sin affects individuals. He wants to see individuals healed, and he's willing to make space in his life for that. But he's also aware that when you get a bunch of sinful people together, they create systems of sin and injustice. That sin begins to create individual problems and communal problems. And Jesus steps out into this kind of world and brings hope both to the individual and to the systems of the world. And he does this not simply uh, as he gathers groups of people together, but again, as a lifestyle. And he does this by opening up his life and embracing inconvenience. So much of his ministry and his life in extending outwards was inconvenient, right? I think sometimes when we begin to think about this idea of a lifestyle of up, of in, of out, it, that's, the, that's the place of counting the cost, right? Is that this means that I don't get to control all these things. I don't get to control every part of my life in the way that I would like. It means that like Jesus, I begin to, I still have boundaries, but I begin to say, you know what? And I like this phrase, God, I give you permission to begin to interrupt my day. God, I begin to give you you permission. God, what do you want to do? As I walk into Walmart today, is there any way you want to interrupt me? Is there anything that you have for me right now? What do you want to say through me? What do you want to do through me? It's as practical as that. But then it goes from an event to beginning to become a lifestyle. You know, um, that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived this lifestyle. But he also calls us to this too. In Matthew 22, 37, uh, Jesus is approached, and if you could put that up on the screen, he's approached and asked, what is, what is the greatest commandment? And, they begin, and he begins to respond and saying, it's to love God. Love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength. He's, he's inviting those who hear into the, the place of fullness, of absolute surrender. And that's the up piece, Right? Loving God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength, up to God. And then he said the second commandment's like that, to love your neighbor, which is even beyond our community, to love those outside of our community as yourself. So he's got up and he's got out as two of the primary things that he calls us to. And then in John 13, verses 34, 35, he says this, he says, um, I've got this one on my Bible, and now I give you a new commandment, love one another. I have, if you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. 
I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know your disciples. So it's not just that Jesus modeled going up in his relationship with the Father, going in and letting people in and living this life with other people in relationship and community, committed to them, and going out as he lets God, the Father, interrupt him and inconvenience his life. He's calling us to the same thing. This lifestyle of giving God our all upward, this lifestyle of giving God our all outward and giving our God our all inward. So, um, you know, last summer, we, it was a hot one, right? If you guys remember, July, August, it was, it was a hot summer this last summer. And one day, uh, we came home into our house and uh, we rent, so uh, when problems happen, it's our landlord's problem. Uh, so we walk in the house, and as soon as we get in the door, we know that uh, something's wrong. It's like you could feel the heat, like the, the heat waves like coming out the door as we're opening the door to go into our house, like, uh-oh, something's broken. It was like so hot that like I'm sweating, Megan's sweating, and we look around, and it's like the paint sweating on the walls, you know? It's like hot. So we go over to the... Uh, to the thermostat, and we're looking at it, and it's like, okay, well, the batteries are working, the, the power's on, it seems to, be, seems to be working, and the number on the screen says like 90-something, so it's like, it's working on some level, right? And then we, we call the, the uh, super, and he comes and brings somebody to check it out, and he's like, yep, that thing seems to be working. I don't know. And they end up crawling around in the attic and they begin to check out the whole system and find out that there's a piece missing and they need to fix it. But you know what? Our thermostat had become a thermometer. A thermostat, what's its job? To regulate, to change the atmosphere of the house. But it had become what? A thermometer. And it was telling us the temperature of the house. That was helpful on that level. But it wasn't doing its job, was it? You know, as, as Christians, and as I look at the life of Jesus, he calls us, and he didn't come just as a thermometer. And oftentimes, as Christians, we do that pretty well, don't we? We come into an atmosphere, we come into an environment and say, here's the temperature, here's what's going on, here are the things that need to change. But Jesus stepped into a world, into a whole atmosphere, and he became the thermostat. He stepped in and said, I'm changing this whole thing. And how did he do that? It wasn't just that he came in and just began to put some dates on his calendar and go around as an itinerant minister and, and minister places. No, it was he began to live it out in his life. He turned up the temperature in his life in an upward way. He began to live out this lifestyle with the Father. He turned up the temperature in his life as he began to surround himself with an intentional group of people that God called him to and began to invest in life with them. And then he turned up the temperature as he began to go out to the world and opening up his life to God to use him. And as he did that, what happened? The culture began to be affected and change. This is God's invitation to us, and he calls his people to be light and to be salt. That's an intrinsic thing, right? That happens from within us outward. A few years ago, God began to speak that to me, that the revolution that he's calling us to begins within the revolution that he wants to bring to our world begins within us. Because it's like, whatever's happening in my lifestyle, how can I expect others to be doing something different than what's already happening in me? 
He's inviting us to be a thermostat that lives out normal Christianity. So here's the deal. As we begin to hear that, I bet you hear those, those three areas, the up to God with the Father, the inward in community, and the outward to the world. And uh, here, I'll just speak for me. When I hear that, there's one that I feel naturally good at. Like, yeah, I got that. And then there's a second one, I'm like, ah, okay, I could sort of do that. And then there's a third one, I'm like, I feel fairly bad at that. You know? As you hear this up, in, and out. And the, the thing that Jesus invites us into as we hear that, and, or I'll say this, my temptation in that is to want to camp out and play to my strengths. As I hear Jesus, as I see Jesus living this life, and then as I hear about those on the pages of the book of Acts living out this lifestyle of up and in and out, I think, oh yeah, that, I like that part right there. That, that up piece or, or that in piece, that, I feel real, that feels really good. I love this community piece. Or, you know, over here, this, the outreach piece is there as they're doing the evangelism and they're going, that feels really good. And then you want to just like read over all the other parts of the, of the, of the book, right? And you just find the pieces like, oh, they did this. And then over here, they also went out. Over here, they also went out. Or over here, they went in, in, in. It's like, oh, this is what it means to be church. Do we do that? I do that. But here's the invitation from Jesus. He says, will you come and follow me and be a learner? Will you come and be, be on a journey? Because the reality of following Jesus and following him into his lifestyle is that he wants to perfect his strength in our weakness. This is what it means to be Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Not to simply camp out in our strengths, but to be perfected in our weakness. What, the, what does that mean? That means that we all get to be uncomfortable, right? I mean, if we're real about it, we all are going to be uncomfortable. We're all going to have spots where we're going to be the cheerleader and be like, guys, come on, over here, the in peace. Guys, this is, this is what it's all about. Or we're going to be over here and everybody's going to be like, oh, come over here, it's the out piece or it's the up. And then we're all going to be uncomfortable and feel called to pieces of that that we don't get as excited about. Amen? So Jesus practiced what he preached. And how do we begin to step into that reality in our life? And as I begin to end this morning, I want to share this story with you. It was about uh, three years ago, this month even, that I went up to uh, Urbana, Illinois with Karina and some others. I told her I was telling this story about her this morning. Uh, Karina's amazing, by the way. She leads our uh, Spanish outreach, and uh, she just does so many things in our community. So thank you, Karina. But we went up to Urbana, Illinois, and we went to a More Love, More Power conference that was all about how do we step into being God's hands and feet to the world and at that conference, uh, there was a man named Robbie Dawkins, who was one of the speakers. Some of you may know him. He was here uh, for the ordination for Brian and Janine a few weeks back. Um, and he is what I would call a power evangelist, meaning that he steps into the place of demonstrating the gospel through the power of God. And people come, and then they hear the proclamation of gospel out of that, and they get saved. So he's a power evangelist. And so I, uh, he's one of the speakers, and Karina came up to me on the second day, and she said to me, hey, Mark, I notice that every time Robbie's about to speak or he comes into the room, you leave the room or you go to the other side of the room. What's up with that? And I said, I hadn't really noticed. I was like, I don't know. Whatever. Leave me alone. 
and uh, so she's like, no, what do you do? Why, why do you do that? Why do you go to the other side of the room or leave the room whenever he, he's coming in to speak? And I said, I don't know. I don't know, Karina. And she said, well, can I tell you? And I said, okay, here she goes. She's got the answer to it, too. So, uh, so she said, whenever Robbie speaks, I think there's something that he is carrying that God has for you. I think there's something in his life that he wants to give to you. And there's something in you that's afraid to receive it. Something in you that doesn't know what you want, if you want it. And I was, and it hit me, and I was like, oh, she's right. <laughs> and then I was like, but I don't want that, right? And so I said, okay, oh, that's great, whatever, Karina. And, and she said, so here's what you need to do. You need to go and have him pray for you. So I'm like, really? I have to have him pray for me? So the conference goes along, and we get to the last day, and I had this in the back of my mind, like, okay, Lord, I think, I think that might actually be you, and I'm supposed to do that. I don't want to do that. And so the last session comes, and then uh, they end. They say amen, and the, ba- the band starts to pack up, and everybody's like, oh, this is a great conference, and talking with each other, and, and I'm like, oh, this is like my last chance. So I go up to the front, and I get in the line to get prayer from Robbie, and I'm watching as other people he like, we'll pray for them. And then he's saying, oh, bless you. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this person. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this person. So then I get to the front. And I'm like, okay, so here's my turn. Uh, what do you want? He asks. And I didn't even know. I said, well, just more, more of God. That was all I could think of. So he starts to pray for me. And I fall on the ground. This doesn't always happen to me, but I fell on the ground. And I'm like shaking under the power of God. God was clearly doing something in me. So I'm, I'm expecting like, wow, okay, this is amazing. So Robbie's going to come over and he's going to say, bless you. God, thank you for what you're doing. And he comes over to me, but he doesn't say that. He says to me, and this is what he said. He said, if you do nothing with this, it ends here. And I'm going, thank you? <laughs> so I get up and I, I'm like, what just happened? So I go back to the back and I'm talking with the group and Karina, she starts to pray for me and it happens again. I'm like on the ground. And so we get in the van and we're driving back and I'm like, God, what was that? If I do nothing with this, it ends here? And I felt like he began to say to me, you know, Mark, you are so sincere and you really do have the emotion, the desire to step into this place of joining me in advancing my kingdom. And I'm so proud of that. But I felt like he said, will you say yes to letting me develop a lifestyle in your life? He said, will you say yes to letting me develop a container in your life to carry this on a regular basis? And so we got back and, you know, we said, we began to talk, a group of us, and said, you know what, let's just start to do this. So we put a day of the week on the calendar, Wednesday afternoons, and we just started to go every week, week in, week out. Sometimes things would happen. Sometimes we'd show up and nothing would happen. But week in and week out, God began to stir something in our hearts. And you know what happened in me? It's like when an engine begins to fire, it's just that explosion that gets it going, right? And it needs that explosion so that it can go, 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 go on a regular basis. And for me, what I began to realize was I need some I need a regular thing in my life. I need a regular practice in my life so that I begin to live a lifestyle of this, so that I begin to live this out. And so for me, I began to say, you know what? This out piece is a piece that I really need to grow in. It's an area that I feel weak. God, would you come and help me be strong? And he invited me in for it to not just be in a place of emotion, but for me to make space in my life 
so that it could begin to grow into a lifestyle in my life. So here's what I want to say to you that as we begin to end this morning, that God is not looking for you to try to figure out how to live an up in and out lifestyle. In fact, I I hope that you don't hear this this morning from me or anybody else from the account of Wesley or anyone and think, oh, wow, that's what I need to do because then we lost it. It's not about trying to compare ourselves to somebody else. Sometimes those things can be catalytic and help our hearts step into it, but God's asking for a yes. God's asking for our yes. He'll show you from there, but I find that so, so much of what happens, what happened for me as I was leaving that conference and getting prayer from Robbie I don't have to try to make my life look like Robbie Dawkins. What he's asking is, will I say yes to open up this area that feels really weak in my life and let him come and be strong and begin to show me how to live this out as a lifestyle? So we will all feel drawn to one or two out of those three. And we're all going to feel uncomfortable. But we all get to grow into living this life with Jesus. So why don't you stand as we end today? Because here's the deal. We don't want to be a people who understand forgiveness uh, or understand prayer, understand mission, or understand justice intellectually. We want to be the people who can forgive, who can hear and respond to God, who actually know him. We want to be a people who have hearts that break for our world and the people in it, and do something about it. We want to be the kind of people whose lives look like those that we see on the pages of Scripture. So I want to invite uh, the ministry team to come up, the worship team to come back up, and I just want to ask you this question as we land this morning. What are you aiming for in your life? What are you aiming for? Because you're probably going to get it. Wherever we aim our hearts, wherever we aim our lives, we're probably going to get it. And what if we aimed for a lifestyle in our lives? So this morning, we're going to respond to this uh, by saying yes to Jesus through communion. We can do none of these things. We can't go up, we can't go in, and we can't go out without Jesus, without his uh, life and activity flowing in us and through us. And that's what happens as we take communion, is that we become participants in the life of Jesus, him flowing into us and flowing out through us. So uh, Janine, you want to direct us in how... You want to do communion? Um, thanks. I think we've got some, some servers that are going to be up, up here. Um, during, thank you guys who are serving. appreciate that. Um, so during, as we go back into worship, um, just at, as you want to, uh, just when you want to, just go ahead and come up and get some juice. And then our servers have the bread. You can take it back to your seats. But if, if you'll come down these aisles and then go back out the side aisles, it'll help us avoid traffic jams. If you also just want to stay up here by the, the front, um, by the altar, then that's fine as well. Yeah, so we will go back into worship, and I just invite you guys, this is our time to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus. And again, you don't have to have it all figured out. As you're coming up here and receiving communion, you're just saying, Lord, I don't know, but you're the one who comes to be strong where I am weak, and I say yes to you. So, Holy Spirit, come.